every week there's a thread about, okay, here's how I'm pretty sure chainmail bikinis could definitely work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look in my Eberron. The way it works is through two consenting adults, not two people venturing into a dungeon, okay? <laughs> Just call it what it is. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Painstaking Recreation in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 273 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're letting appearances deceive us as we discuss verisimilitude. But first, the party makes a house call in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Winston leaps into the fray in the Character Creation Forge. So something exciting started hitting store shelves uh, over the past couple of weeks, Ishan, and we haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, uh, maybe it's because we were steeped in it for such a long time earlier this year that when it showed up, suddenly I was like, I was surprised. I was like, oh, wait, yes, that exists now. It, it's in the wild. Right. That was the thing that we did at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Cobalt Press's Tome of Beasts 2, which is a, a second uh, supplement that they have done as a, a, a monster manual supplement, is now available uh, for sale on their website, which means Kickstarter backers are starting to get their physical copies and uh, people are starting to post the credits page of which you can or on which you can find both of our names. In a sea of many, many other names. Yes, there are 40 <laughs> names getting the same credit that we are, and that feels like an accurate representation of our contribution. <laughs> I will take it, given the list of names that we are included in. It, it's good company. Yeah, uh, we did not submit any of the monster designs, so uh, none of that is our <laughs> our creation, but we were involved in um, you know, kind of helping out to tweak those things and, and get it all up into, uh, into one format. I think it's a, a cool compilation. Like as the name implies, it's a, a bunch of stat blocks and lore for monsters that you might throw at your players in a game. You know, you've got good creatures, evil creatures, etc. Some variations on other creatures that you've either seen in the monster manual or the previous Tome of Beasts, but a lot of completely new monsters. Uh, some of them are, you know, derived from real world mythology. Uh, there are a lot of creatures in there that are inspired by uh, like North American indigenous mythologies. Um, and then, you know, you see some, uh, interesting Greek ones, maybe, maybe some of the ones that don't get top billing in most, uh, fantasy games. Yeah. Uh, I also like that there are a lot of animated things in there. So if you've ever wanted to fight an animated bear rug, for example, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> It'll put you in a bear rug hug. <laughs> also, you'll die. Right. You'll die. Um, so yeah, so it was cool. I mean, like it was it was great to be a part of that, working with uh, with some you know top notch designers, um, and and it was cool to see how the sausage gets made from a company like Cobalt Press, which is obviously not the size of Wizards, but does have that kind of um, pedigree and in, in terms of producing these types of products. So um, understanding how adults do it and not just you know amateurs like ourselves. Yeah, it turns out there's just as much math on the back end as there is on the front end when you're sitting alone, you know, in your room 10 minutes before a session is starting. You're like, oh, God, I've got to adjust all these numbers on this monster so it doesn't completely murder the entire party or so it can completely murder the so entire party. So it murders party. the entire party. <laughs> <laughs> and we're excited to hopefully collaborate on some projects in the future, too. All right. So where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign, and in Korth, the austere capital city of Karnath, the party is chasing a killer. Are we in Korth? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You made it back to Korth. Oh, In cool. relatively one piece. Oh, yeah. All right. Only okay. two of you died. <laughs> so we do have a lead on the whereabouts of Otho, the leader of the rogue Jurasco sect Triage. But before heading to Fairhaven, the party decides to try and find Elaine, uh, Pole's father, who was also there on the day of morning. First, though, they report back into Ephraim's sister, Velina de Orion, telling her that they have destroyed one branch of the cult that her brother Ephraim discovered, but other branches must still be tracked down. And as a reward, she gives them a House Orion pin that once belonged to Ephraim. It's styled like a unicorn, the house crest, and it smells of fresh grass, and it allows the wearer to cast Dimension Door one time per day. 
She also offers the party a choice of a weapon from the Orion Vault, and Lenore selects a juniper bow that stirs a faint breeze when she picks it up. And now everyone in the party can deal magical damage. Which, so far you've seen, is pretty important. Yeah. So using the reagent items they found in Pol's cache as a lead, Switch sets up a meeting with some local Kalashtar, who agree to meet in an abandoned temple. Now they know that reagent items occasionally enter the city, but when they try to track them, they quickly lose them, which indicates that someone or something is obscuring these items from them. And they tell her, those who follow the Path of Shadow can learn to track these items down because of their strong psychic resonance, which is a very intriguing possibility for Vesikod, the Kalishjar, who probably is going to begin following the Path of Shadow. Then Lenore taps her underworld contacts to set up a meeting with a local fence, hoping that this fence will know who would be interested in rare items like this. And then after some carousing to make contact... A lot of carousing. Okay, I mean like a session or two of carousing. <laughs> uh, Lenore meets a skeptical half-elf named Garrick in a quiet room above a bar. For a small fee, he examines the rapier and the stone whistle and recognizes the items at least by their description. A few years earlier, he had heard they were being moved into the city by a wealthy buyer, a man named Alan. These mindsets are not particularly good at coming up with code names, apparently. No, no, they're <laughs> because not. The, the party immediately suspects that this is actually Elaine, Pole's father, who has now been mindseated. So Switch, sitting at the table, breaks her cover as a changeling and transforms into a copy of Elaine to see if Garrick says it's the same person. And Garrick confirms it. He also promises to keep her secret that she's a changeling on pain of death. Uh, some more gold exchanges hands. And Garrick tells the party that Alan lives in towers in the High Court Ward. He mostly keeps to himself, only going out for a rare fine dinner or drinks, uh, otherwise keeping a low profile. Seems like he likes the same stuff that Paul likes. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of that very night, the party passes without trace to the High Court District. They ride a magical lift up to Alan's apartment, several stories above the street. And there, suspended above the rest of the city, a tree-lined courtyard leads to his front door. Switch cleverly transforms into another of the refugees, Johera, hoping to fool him into letting down his guard, while the rest of the party act as her escorts and pull their cloaks low over their faces. She approaches slowly and cautiously and raises her hand to knock on the door, but just as she is about to... It opens, and Elaine appears, seeming as if he's just about to step outside because he seems very surprised to see them all. And as his eyes meet Johera's, he explodes in a flash of light. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are talking about verisimilitude chain, guys exploding into light in the middle of a city. This doesn't make any sense. I find it completely unbelievable. That's where your verisimilitude problem is? Not that the guy <laughs> is covertly hiding with one letter different than his real name? <laughs> like, that is literally like, oh, uh, his name is um, uh, TV console stand? Nope. I mean, uh, uh, end table. His name, you, is, his name is Entable. You read real stories of real spies or uh, people going into witness protection. It makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Shane, what the heck is verisimilitude? Uh, so, verisimilitude is the appearance of truth or reality in the game or in the game world. It's a combination of setting, lore, narration, and roleplay characterization that bring the game to life in the player's imaginations. Right. So the more verisimilitude that you have in your game, the more it is established through the narration and through the role playing and the more that it's maintained through like log logical causality, then the more logically the story is going to unfold for the players. You know, a thing happens, and you go, oh, that makes sense, given all of the information that we know about this world. Yeah, your cause and effect will follow, right? Uh, players can track, oh, this happened, therefore this was the outcome. Or, you know, it, it meets their expectations of the world. You know, this is a feudal society, so people behave in a certain way. You know, this is a democratic republic, so people behave in a certain way. Um, it, it helps minimize their cognitive dissonance between their real-world experience and the 
uh, leaps that you're asking them to make, you know, the assumptions that they have to accept in order to have a fantasy or fictional world. Right. We're playing a, a game here. It is, by definition, not the real world. So you need to have assumptions about how that world works, especially if it has something like magic or far future scientific technology or something like that. But, you know, even in a, a, a game set in like the modern real world, you have different assumptions. Knights Black Agents uses mostly real technology, except there's also vampires. Yeah, I mean, uh, right, like uh, Call of Cthulhu, right? Like you're, a, a, you know, a person in the 1930s um, and everything is normal except for, you know, the band of cultists running around trying to bring about the end of the world. Right. Uh, so, you know, given the assumptions of the Call of Cthulhu world, if you say that, you know, some horrible eldritch abomination is about to break into reality and take over the minds of everyone in New York City, that makes sense. If you tell me in 1927 that I could get a drink in a bar without looking over my shoulder, I'm confused. <laughs> so keep in mind here, verisimilitude is an objective, but it is not the objective, right? Um, things like fridge logic still applies, right? Like the, the logical leaps that you only notice after the fact. Um, TV Tropes references possibly my favorite, which is uh, why does Zordon uh, enlist a bunch of teenagers to uh, to defend the world against Rita Repulsa <laughs> and not like, you know, mercenaries or a government or something? Because they're malleable and that's creepy. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he's grooming them. Get out, Power Rangers, while you can. <laughs> but I think of like... You know, like, I love Pacific Rim, right? It's a great action movie. It's probably the best, like, mecha, like, kaiju movie that you can watch in terms of how it depicts the action. But, like, at the end of the day, it makes no sense that we built giant mechs to fight kaiju instead of drones. I, a thing that we're good at and already have. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem, right? Mecha don't make any sense. Why would we build something with their vaguely humanoid shape when that really isn't even the best uh, form for biological creatures to take <laughs> right exactly so but that's the type of thing you only think about afterwards when you're in the moment right it's great you don't question that that's just mm -hmm. an assumption that you go with and and verisimilitude works around that until you know you get enough distance and then oops yeah you're thinking about it 15 years later wait a minute the little mermaid makes no sense <laughs> right <laughs> How come she gets out of the water and her hair isn't sopping wet? Explain that to me. Did it also turn her gills into lungs? Did that happen too? Because we only really see a feet transformation. <laughs> right. And then also there is an element of ironic distance that's different in a game world than it is in, say, film or, you know, fiction. Um, the players are aware they're playing a game. <laughs> like, they have to stop and look up a rule or they have to go grab their dice or they have to scan their character sheet that's not something you do when you consume other forms of fiction as viewers right there are lots of like timeouts right it isn't i'm not sitting in an imax theater or i don't have a vr headset on and i'm like trying to have a completely immersive experience you stop for a second you you're distracted by something in the real world and and everything stops for a moment and then you sort of like get back into it, which, which honestly is one of the reasons why verisimilitude can be so important. It allows you to slip right back into the game after interruptions. Yeah, but likewise, it's why it can't be the sole objective, <laughs> because <laughs> players will slip out of it, right? Like, um, they have time to think about things in the moment. They have time to spot the tropes that you're using or the, you know, genre conventions that you've deployed and, and make a comment about that. Yeah, the interactions that you're having the like ponderings that you're doing those shower thoughts that happen years later when you're thinking about 90s nostalgia that happens between every weekly session in an rpg right and and you have six people at the table who are all like thinking over time especially now during the pandemic and going hold on why does this make sense again that's the good version of verisimilitude <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> what else verisimilitude is yeah, let's be honest, we're mostly doing an entire episode on verisimilitude because sometimes it causes problems, right? It, like, right. Often gets cited by like very passionate nerds who like really need everyone to understand that they understand the scientific justification for something. Like, here's here's why this works. Let's let's uh well actually I am part of a uh I've joined a a um subreddit, uh Daystrom Institute that uh painstakingly takes a lot of time to really explain why. Uh, things work the way they do in Star Trek, both from a scientific and uh, political perspective. What was that? Uh, what was that project by the guy who like built the rules of magic for Harry Potter? He like reconstructed it from the from the text. Oh, dear lord! 
Like, <laughs> oh wait, are you, are you thinking Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality? That might be it. <laughs> That's Eliezer Yudkowsky, um turning uh, Harry himself into an author. Insert, let you know. To be frank, okay, okay. great. And I'm pretty sure Magic ended up being some sort of like you know ancient ai technology although i'm also pretty sure the end petered out and you didn't really find out for sure yeah you never really finished right <laughs> you can't you can't take that project up to finish it um but anyway like i think this this does explain why your justification is important right um even if like the story itself is only really dependent on the fact that you know that element exists so mm -hmm. let's look at like star trek and beam me down scotty right like teleporting to the surface of the world like all you need to know is that there's a quick and easy way for you to go back and forth between the ship and move items and cargo right so when you need it it can be handy and and you can have that dramatic moment of get me out of here <laughs> i guess that's beam me up isn't it? it it is in fact beam me up yes okay cool yeah big <laughs> the star person trek who beam, beams you down is eh, random transporter room guy usually <laughs> okay <laughs> but you know those are the things that people will think about like if there's an established canon as to how transporter technology works then there's an explanation for why people don't just transport or teleport enemies organs out of their bodies and like hey guess what we're done you know right because of course players in the game will immediately think oh great i have this ability where i can teleport things i'm going to use it to kill enemies and take their stuff this is why everyone was so angry about the holdo maneuver exactly it completely undoes all the effort that was done in the first canon because you could just fly spaceships at hyperspace directly through large objects in space and destroy them hmm where can i think of one death would have saved a ton of lives <laughs> right this this is the instance where verisimilitude is important like uh introducing that into canon breaks the verisimilitude that people feel uh the logical consistency of the universe that has been established over decades and multiple movies like suddenly it doesn't matter that luke was an amazing pilot and able to like you know, take his single X-Wing in and, and defeat the Death Star and all of those other, you know, deaths that happened, uh, the rest of, like, red and gold team who, like, w we cared about when they exploded. It didn't matter anymore because all you needed to do was outfit one, like, junker cruiser with a, a, a hyperdrive and blast it into the Death Star. Right. <laughs> Until then, okay, so then, like, let's follow the canon of the Holdo Maneuver. <laughs> then we get a bunch of justifications in canon for why the Holdo Maneuver was unique and could only work that time and why it doesn't get used all, all over the galaxy. I mean, speaking of drones, why'd she need to be sitting in the chair? That is sort of, they have droids, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> who, who we have established don't matter as people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Was that established... Uh, I mean, everyone's very racist. Well, that's true. The Millennium Falcon problem wasn't really established until after that movie, though. <laughs> anyway, we're getting into the weeds because people care about Varys Miltude. <laughs> right, exactly. And this is the problem. <laughs> what should just be an exciting, uh, an exciting action sequence and the end of a film uh, ends up being this whole can of worms that we've now opened ourselves. Please don't add us about the Holdo Maneuver or be me up or down. <laughs> over it's over come on don't come beat on. me anywhere beat me around scotty of course this has a much darker side than just complaining about a movie you know on a podcast or, or the internet it can easily often be wielded as a cudgel that gatekeepers can use to uh keep new fans out of, out of a fandom or to you know make fun of people who are spending a lot of time putting a lot of energy into creating you know fantasy and, and fiction for other people to enjoy or just you know rejecting differing points of view right because they prize their verisimilitude over whatever new perspective is brought into the fandom or the uh, canon hey shane i've just written a short story about female space marines what do you think um well so here's the thing is that we already <laughs> established that all gene seeds are male so it breaks my verisimilitude uh, also, so, women aren't as strong as men, so it doesn't make sense to use them as warriors. I said it. So the emperor was able to psychically manipulate a genetic sequence in order to create people who break the square cube law, but he wasn't able to to do it with X chromosomes. No, get a Y chromosome, nerd. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I yeah, buy it. Yep. It's, it's sold. Cool. Just, also, just... these necros, these necrons have no chromosomes. <laughs> okay. All right. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nonsense, right? Like it's 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 just used to make so like prevent somebody from changing what you're already familiar with, or otherwise like keep people's valid and interesting perspectives out of whatever you hold dear. And I think what's important here is like verisimilitude is not the issue here, right? It's it's the idea that like wanting a realistic game world is okay. Um, it's the idea that your perspective of what's realistic, quote unquote, uh, can be different from other people at your table or other people in your game group um, or from reality itself, right? Like the way the world works for you might not be the same way that it works for everybody you know. And that perspective is their perspective is also valid and your sense of verisimilitude shouldn't override that. I think that's where it becomes a huge problem. Right. It becomes a justification for either maintaining the status quo, like, hey, if you're going to run a fantasy setting, uh, look at historical accuracy. If you if you want me to experience any kind of verisimilitude, then we've got to have racism and slavery and sexual violence. And uh, why are women even allowed to play as characters in this game? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I can't imagine a fantasy world without patriarchy. That just breaks my verisimilitude. Like, okay, well then, like, don't play it. <laughs> but, but what keeps us from doing that and enjoying it? But you know what doesn't break my verisimilitude is creating fire from nothing. <laughs> yeah. It also doesn't create a pressure wave. I don't know why. Every time I cast Fireball, my ears pop. Okay, we've explained <laughs> that. Every time I cast Fireball, uh, fires somewhere else in the world get extinguished. <laughs> nice. I'm merely transporting the fire. Right. Making fire from that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's endothermic fire. <laughs> and I think this is this is most problematic when it is used by people we unfortunately all know uh, or have to experience on the internet. Present company uh, accepted Shane. Straight white guys. Uh, who really don't want uh, the you know the peanut butter of women and people of color and queer people inside their fantasy chocolate? Yeah, uh, the worst kinds of straight white dudes <laughs> like <laughs> seem to be the ones, right? <laughs> like uh, whether that is because of the setting that they've created or are defending, or because they're you know actively um, aggressive uh, and exclusionary towards people in like community spaces. Either way, the behavior is harmful um and verisimilitude often gets wrapped up in that uh as their justification for you know bad behavior right the bad behavior comes first and the verisimilitude is co-opted as an excuse for it i mean they seem to have no problem with breasts that completely defy the laws of gravity yeah i mean gravity and this is a high g world okay <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> also like boob armor still a thing that people are fighting for Every week there's a thread about, okay, here's how I'm pretty sure chainmail bikinis could definitely work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look in my Eberron. The way it works is through two consenting adults, not two people venturing into a dungeon, okay? <laughs> Just call it what it is. <laughs> All right, so you want a certain amount of verisimilitude in your game. What are some tips and tricks for making sure that you hit that sweet spot? Good enough is plenty. <laughs> um, you don't have to be perfect. So solve for verisimilitude only where your players will actually notice, right? If nobody in your group cares why G.I. Joe shoots red lasers and Cobra shoots blue lasers, then don't bother explaining it. It doesn't need to be explained. You don't have to explain everything that doesn't match up with the real world because there's no way to do that because then you'd be explaining an entirely new type of physics, right? Which we can't even... Explain normal physics. Yeah, I know. Right. We'll, we'll just accept the lasers, but the color of the laser is the problem. <laughs> Here's my unified field theory of my homebrew. <laughs> but there's always going to be space in which people don't necessarily understand or or don't care, and it doesn't really matter because only certain kinds of issues are going to pop up. You play an Eclipse Phase game, and anything's possible because anything could be a simul space, and you would have no way of knowing. So. Nobody ever needs an explanation for why is this thing floating or why is it that color or why can I hear it in my head? It's because it's all virtual. It, it has been explained, right? But you have one ship move faster than the speed of light and suddenly <laughs> that breaks my verisimilitude because it's been established in this game that that's not a thing we can do. <laughs> 
all right, so what can we do <laughs> if we have this problem? <laughs> like, what if what if I have uh, accidentally narrated the uh, the breaking of the speed of light, and uh, and and little Ishin at the eclipse phase game is freaking out? You mean Quinn, 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 and his buddy Quinn? I mean, I, I think I mean Quinn in real life and is playing Ishin at the table, <laughs> who is playing a character exactly named what's Quinn. Happening. Yeah, I think that's my my entire life actually. <laughs> Bad roles, man. Bad roles. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to deflect. Usually I'll just say something like, yeah, that is weird. That's actually really surprising. You don't know why. You're kind of wondering how that's possible. Interesting. And that buys me a lot of time to figure out why the hell it is actually happening because I don't know. And I guess I just forgot in the moment. <laughs> yeah, just delay it, deflect it, sort it out later. It's a uh, <laughs> bad way to deal with your relationship. Great way to deal with your players. <laughs> Uh, that that means ghosting them is good too. <laughs> is it? <laughs> <laughs> the key is to find them on uh, on Bumble. <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of the other app. <laughs> Tinder. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah well, we you go. get better results with your players on on Bumble than Tinder. Everyone knows that. The players have to reach out to you first. I like playing games on Hinge, <laughs> but that's because I'm a bad person. You shouldn't play games in your relationships, people. Okay, lean into the fantastical elements, right? Like, you don't know it, you don't know how that's possible, or, hey, it was a wizard. It's some kind of spooky new magic. It's NPC magic. That's my favorite, right? It's like, that is not available to PCs in this game. Right. Uh, or, you know, the, you, you can always lean on like, oh, <laughs> you don't know what it would be like to have that kind of power. It would probably drive you mad, and that's why this doesn't even make sense that a wizard did do it. It happens sometimes. You can lean into the mystery, right? This is sort of another version of like, you don't know, but man, that's weird. Is That can work not just for things that seem to break the laws of physics, but just things that don't really make sense when you're talking to your player who actually has a master's degree in economics and mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, uh, the iron supply. Right. <laughs> like, but this, that makes absolutely no sense. Right. Like this commodity does not seem to be that limited if we have creation magic. Explain to me how the economy works. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Maybe that's something you could investigate. And, that, and that's it, right? It's, it's like, yeah, that is weird. Your character also wonders how that works. Players also, you can just not worry about it. You know, mm -hmm. you could like try not you could not try to break the economy in the game because that will just make it less fun. But then how am I going to get my uh, my peasant railgun? You uh, that, that can happen in the game without breaking the economy. Uh, peasants, the action economy, sir. The only real economy <laughs> of the game. The action economy. You're not wrong. How is it possible that I can move 40 feet and make six attacks? And that, well, I, let's call it haste. Um, also, you can lean on the alien here. Um, this is where, you know, maybe you would have marched straight on the Capitol, but the cultists clearly have something different going on, right? They, uh, they don't have the same, like, logical pattern that you do. Um, let that just stand on its own. Yeah, this will happen a lot when you're thinking about, you know, how do I run a particular type of enemy? You know, they won't always act in, quote unquote, their best interest because their best interest may be completely different from their perspective. That might be why they all flee immediately when it seems like they have the upper hand or they stay and fight to the death when it seems like there's no way they can win. And you can also lean on the real world. Like, truth is stranger than fiction. If you want to find something wacky and weird and like an impossible, like serendipitous um, coincidence, it's happened somewhere. Just Google it. I mean, Archduke Ferdinand will always come to mind. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, like a botched assassination <laughs> attempt turns into a successful assassination attempt because his car broke down in front of the sandwich shop that the would-be assassin happened to be crabbing lunch at. Completely different location. <laughs> right. Different part of the city. He'd given up. <laughs> if he was competent, it probably wouldn't have worked in the first place. <laughs> right. I mean, if he was competent, he wouldn't have accepted the assignment in the first place. Well, there's that. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, like, you know, if you're inspired by real world events, like, and, and you have those players who are kind of, like, nagging you with the gotchas, like, you can be like, hey, actually, like, the inspiration for this was this strange event um i i know i've like in our discord i linked a story um to like what's going on in like anchorage alaska local politics right now of like this frankly batshit story of the mayor involved with a reporter involved with a QAnon like anti-mask cult that operates out of a diner 
then like they were all taking each other down (laughs) and she thought she was going to win an emmy for it (laughs) twin peaks turns out is a documentary exactly (laughs) do you think decades from now gamers are going to be like yeah i really drew inspiration from 2020 for for this plot so like you know it's going to be a pretty crazy ride yeah (laughs) yeah i'm just rolling random events okay exactly (laughs) It's kind of the same way that like we take the the 80s aesthetic for cyberpunk like they're going to take the 2020s aesthetic for like apocalypse punk. God, yes, every disaster movie ever. And then I think going back to uh to ch- tips and tricks for um managing verisimilitude though. Uh, keep in mind there is no platonic ideal. Uh you don't need to over-engineer this, right? Like I think there is a tendency um, where new GMs or old and and maybe like bored GMs want to set this goal of like a perfectly logical stochastic game world that responds with faultless logic to everything the players do and any stimulus can be accounted for uh, with, with perfect rationality. And like that just doesn't actually exist. And if it did, it wouldn't work. Yeah, it'd be super boring. We play these games so that we can introduce some randomness into them. Yeah, like the the odds that six random adventurers band together and have irreversibly shaped the course of human history to their will is like zero. Like there's too much inertia in the real world, right? Like you can never actually accomplish that. So if you imply perfect logic, uh, you never make it out of the starting gate. You all just go back to farming because that's a lot safer and a lot more reasonable to do with your time. Yeah, as soon as you're like, wait, I can earn two gold pieces a day? And what I, and, am I doing? And I don't have any zombies trying to bite my neck or <laughs> cobalt's trying to like eat my ribs. Yeah, because there actually isn't a way to do all of this modeling or to create a fantasy game or I mean, any kind of game that is that as perfect verisimilitude. You're always either going to miss something or you know, you're going to spend too much time on things that people don't care about or vice versa. Like I see so many people spend a lot of time on the politics of like you know continent wide um like a a multinational system and the way that they're all interacting and then drilling down in each of those countries to like the the like state and and county level and you know who are the like um the powers that be on the particular city council and how are all those people interacting with each other et cetera, et cetera, given their certain personalities but then you know the, the map that they started with has mountains in impossible places and lakes that you know run uphill uh interior seas yeah. <laughs> so like some things that work here, there's some magic or something and just just let it be. Yeah, I mean all of these things like tend to lo- tend to rely on like dangerously monolithic societies, right? Like improbably monolithic so- societies that just don't have the kind of diversity of, of thought that most people do because you build your world not to be logical you build it to be entertaining and that type of shorthand is extremely valuable for telling a compelling story where you have multiple sides represented but extremely lousy for modeling how real people behave right i think this this is really the the thing that you need to understand is verisimilitude right not the goal it is a tool toward the actual goal which is telling a really interesting compelling story that everyone can get involved in and take part in shaping which i think means you want to err on the side of plausibility right it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be logical it just has to be plausible enough to get over the hump for the players so they can be bought into it right this is something you'll see a lot in fiction right did something improbable happen yeah, because you don't usually tell stories about things that happen in ways that everyone expected that they would. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Three days in the life of me is probably the most boring story you could tell. Right. And, you know, three days in the life of most people. But, like, we talk about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis because it was an exciting time when something really big could have happened. But there's a lot of times in JFK's life that are super dull. Well, you know, except the, the Marilyn Monroe years. <laughs> and the, the PT-109 year, sure. But a lot of time still in there where all he's doing is, you know, playing touch football on Cape Cod with his brothers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he made a few, you know, improbable passes. I, yeah. I guess we could do entire games around that. <laughs> not really the athlete, that, that guy. <laughs> Pop enough pills, you can do anything. Uh, so I, I think what you need to take away here then is that we want to be biased towards um, letting players make interesting decisions rather than 
again, that perfect logic. Um, make sure that whatever decision you're making is the one that propels players forward rather than one that shuts them down. Right. And sometimes I think that means very specifically breaking verisimilitude or allowing players to break it, right? The story that we remember is when somebody takes a flying leap off a cliff and lands on the dragon's back and stays on it, which that is not a thing that can happen. Right. The, uh, <laughs> the barbarian who's swallowed by the dragon and then kills it from the inside out. <laughs> right. I, I, I still have stories about, you know, a, a strength 30 fourth edition fighter ripping an adamantine portcullis off its hinges because he got disarmed, beating the enemies to death with it and then using it to make a new door in the ground. Like, possible? No, like tensile strength doesn't work like that. <laughs> Superman can't lift planes. It, it doesn't make any sense, but it's a cool story. Well, it's just a matter of you know, picking the plane up from the right part. He just has giant hands <laughs> that gently cradles the entire plane. Exactly. <laughs> he uh, he superheats a cushion of air to, to float it. He's only pretending that he's uh, he's lifting it. Is there anything he can't do? <laughs> he can't lose. That's the problem. That's, That's the why issue. he's dull. That's the superpower. <laughs> All right. So to kind of wrap this up and get out of here, uh, verisimilitude is a myth human perception is flawed everything is pointless don't bother no uh not that but verisimilitude is absolutely a myth and human perception is flawed so keep focused on the goal right that verisimilitude exists in service of fun not uh fun does not exist in service of maintaining verisimilitude right bend it to your will use it as a tool shape the world as you see fit or I guess, you know, all of you see fit. And then just, you know, have a good time and laugh a lot. And then anonymous internet commenters suck. <laughs> yeah, you should don't, at us about it. Don't let them ruin your fun. All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Sorry, I'm furiously typing this message to us. I'm so angry about what we just said. Well, then it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge and find a new co-host. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Hi, Autumn here. Being a teenager can be hard, especially when you're the new girl in school. That's why it's important to study up on the changes your body will be going through. Especially if those changes happen when a round pink alien turns you into magical girls. Even magical girls like us have to deal with mean teachers. Yeah, like those suspicious new male teachers and their boss, Misogyny. Even though Misogyny is super hot, she and the other teachers are evil aliens in disguise who torment students to feed off their emotions. But we're going to defeat them all with love and friendship. And terrifyingly powerful magic and maybe a knife yeah i'm gonna need you to roll for that oh shit (laughs) (laughs) find out who triumphs on the latest season of bits before crits magical girls versus the male gaze we are the magical girls and the male gaze believe in elevating women's voices so they're not on this ad check out bits before crits available anywhere you listen to podcasts bits before crits bits before crits see you there All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Winston. From the Ghostbusters? Uh, nope. (laughs) Uh, This is our third installment of Overwatch-tober, so this is... uh... Fourth, because there were five. I remember there were five this this month. Okay, well, that sucks for me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, who's Winston? What's Winston? I have no idea. Winston is an... They taste good, like a cigarette should. (laughs) That's what Fred Flintstone told me. Winston is an uplifted gorilla who is a scientist uh, working for Overwatch who uses his jump pack and Tesla cannon to leap into the front line, cleave enemies, and then uh, when he gets dangerously low on health, he hulks out in a primal rage and uh, bats people around. Cool. Okay. I'm getting more of a sense of what this game is like, and I don't know how I feel about it. (laughs) Are you sure it's not just Eclipse phase? Chaotic is how it goes, really. (laughs) Okay. All right, so what's the build? The build is Ancestral Guardian Barbarian 11, Monk 2, 
Champion Fighter 7. Right. So Monk 2 gets his martial arts, punch with your hands, uh, can use monk weapons uh, to deal unarmed damage, and an unarmored defense bonus gets your wisdom to AC. You also get two key points. Step of the Wind is what we're here for because it allows you to spend a key point and then double your jump distance or dash as a bonus action or disengage, I believe, as well. Um, I'm guessing he's going to be strength primary, which makes that jump distance very big. Very big. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, Then we'll take all 11 levels of Ancestral Guardian Barbarian. So at level 1, we'll get Rage and Unarmored Defense. So we'll add our Constitution to our AC uh, when wearing no armor and then uh level two we'll get danger sense so we have advantage on dexterity saves versus things you can see as well as reckless attack to give ourselves advantage what we really like here is level three ancestral protectors the first target that you hit on your turn uh must attack you or it has disadvantage on its attacks against other creatures and those creatures also have resistance to its attack so it basically focuses the attention of your target on you, which is what you want because you have rage and resistance to damage. You also get extra attack. You get 10 more feet of movement. And at six, you get spirit shield, which lets you reduce damage to a creature within 30 feet of you uh, by up to, you'll get up to 3d6 uh, damage reduction. Uh, you, you roll it every time you use it. Yeah, and I like this. Uh, Between Ancestral Protectors and Spirit Shield, so Winston hops in and he drops a shield in a bubble around him. So anyone inside the shield, right, can can benefit from it. But also anyone between an enemy and the shield gets the benefit of the shield, right? Even if you're not inside. So it still blocks things. So I like the idea that between uh, Protectors and Spirit Shield, you're pretty tanky, right? Like you give a pretty good front line. Uh, Anyone behind you is pretty safe. Feral instinct means you can't be surprised and you get advantage on initiative checks, which means you're always going first, typically. Uh, And then at level nine, you'll get brutal criticals. You'll add an additional weapon die on your critical hits. Then level 10, we'll get consult the spirits. So you can use augury or clairvoyance once per short rest. Uh, That could be a, a nice little like, you know, you're a scientist. You've got a lot of technology at your disposal. Maybe you've got some surveillance equipment. And speaking of being tanky, at 11, you get Relentless Rage. When you drop to zero hit points, you can make a constitution saving throw to drop to one hit point instead. The DC starts at 10, and it gets progressively harder each time you do it before a short rest, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So this is your primal rage. (laughs) This is your ultimate ability. This is you not going down even when you've jumped into the front line and are getting hammered. Then uh, we'll take seven levels of champion fighter to finish us out. Uh, level one, we'll get a fighting style. You'll want either defense for extra AC or great weapon fighting if you'd like to do more damage. Second win lets you heal yourself a bit. Action surge lets you do all the stuff that you do all over again. Um, champion is great because you don't really need to think about it. You just change numbers on your sheet. Improve critical lets you crit on 19 to 20. And what we're really here for as a capstone is Remarkable Athlete. Uh, lets you add half your proficiency to strength decks and constitution checks where you don't already add proficiency. But then we're here for adding your strength modifier to your long jump distance. Uh, at this point, you should have 20 strength, so that will be a plus 5 feet to your long jump. Makes it 25, and with Step of the Wind, it's a 50-foot long jump. Yeah, because that's how it works. (laughs) To long jump, you need to move 10 feet, then jump up to your strength score. So that will be 20 feet naturally. Uh, You will add 5 feet from Markable Athlete. Uh, Step of the Wind, like you said, will double that. And then we'll take the Athlete feet for the first time possibly ever, um, which will reduce that movement to only 5 feet in order to proc your full 50-foot jump. Um and then uh, even if you don't want to make that move, you know, you want a true jump pack kind of experience, you just want to jump clean, uh, a standing long jump is half the distance of your uh, running long jump, and that's still 25 feet. So, Ishan, who is your Winston? My Winston is a Mandalorian. Okay. You're going on about jump packs, uh, jump jets, and, you know, like uh, putting yourself in in harm's way and doodads and scientific gadgets. And it makes me think that this is a 
a great build for if you want to play a Mandalorian. Probably not the Mandalorian because he has a ver very particular skill set, but a Mandalorian who, you know, has earned the jetpack, is able to take like big leaps onto the tops of buildings or, you know, over to get in the line of fire, protect their compatriots or whomever, a foundling, whatever. Uh, and then you have all, all of these like interesting bits of technology that you've gathered or earned or, you know, have the armor make for you or what have you, right? You can reflavor them pretty much however you want because like the the expanse of technology available to a Mandalorian is, is pretty much infinite. So, you know, instead of barbarian ancestral spirits, it's actually like, you know, type three projected shields, you know, um, and instead of like, you know, spending key points, you're, you know, using a, a charge uh, on your pack that, you know, you're sort of keeping a, an eye on like the flashing uh, number of LEDs on your wrist as the uh, combat is is winding down, right? Um, you have ablative armor, right? Instead of uh, taking that relentless rage, you know, it got a, another chunk of your, your chest piece is blown off you, but, you know, you still have another one. It doesn't protect you quite as well this time, but there's still a chance you can take four or five more hits, like, to the head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what about your Winston? So my Winston is a gladiator, uh, a wrestler, a, a sort of... Um, you know, a world's strongest man type, right? Uh, somebody who prides himself not on necessarily combat prowess, but on physical intimidation uh, and, and and physical perfection. And I think that's what uh, what this represents for him is looking for, you know, the biggest, meanest warrior on the field, not caring about mages, not worrying about, you know, healers, uh, but looking for the meanest person on the field who's going to sit there with his um, with his bigger axe and and try to make uh, mincemeat out of your allies. Uh, my Winston is there to leap on them and test them in battle, right? He is there to challenge them and ensure that everyone else gets to do whatever they need to do because he will, you know, take the, the biggest, meanest, most physically intimidating thing in the battle and neutralize them at least long enough to get his friends uh until his friends can turn their attention and bail him out <laughs> possibly after several death saving throws <laughs> uh call someone out across the battlefield and just points you and me you and me exactly exactly this is the um the ajax if you will you know just kind of stalking amongst all the trojans and and calling out the uh who does ajax doesn't matter paris maybe <laughs> who cares Par paris was a trojan yes anyway <laughs> that's how i land here i'm just there to uh to to provide a distraction long enough against the the worst thing on the battlefield and make sure that uh we can ultimately get the w on the day uh in the time that you've taken to mop up the rest of this field i should have died four times <laughs> exactly exactly I might be I might be unkillable. <laughs> like, like I'm not saying that I hurt people. I'm just saying I might not be able to die. I definitely don't have an Achilles. What's it called? What's it? Mm, I don't remember. It probably doesn't exist. Don't worry yeah, about that's it. not a thing. That's that's not a body part. Please, <laughs> it didn't exist until I was born. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's now known. It's the best way to support the show and help other people find us. And if you do, we'll read it on the air. In fact, here is one such five-star review. It's called One of My Favorites by Eric Lusta, who's on the Discord. Hey, buddy. These guys are some of the best TTRPG podcasters out there. They're informative, clear, and supremely entertaining. Audio quality is fantastic. I feel like every episode I listen to, I come away knowing more about how to be a better player and a better game master. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that was very kind of you. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about how to play Kenku. And in the character creation forge? We're building Sombra for, you're welcome, Shane, the end of Overwatch. <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> Well, that's it for episode 273 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.
Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Elderwood Academy. Elderwood Academy are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. All products are crafted to look like spellbooks, scroll cases, codices, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. Hey, Ishan, do you remember uh, longtime sponsor Elderwood Academy has their uh, spellbooks that you can customize the inside of to... Uh, like whole different configurations of like minis or dice or uh, little writing boards or whatever. Oh, absolutely. To hold pretty much everything you need for gaming. And do you remember how you one of the things that you can customize on there is the outside of it to make it look like an Acquisitions Incorporated employee manual or like an old atlas sitting on your shelf or something like that? I totally do. Or symbol of a dragon or a dwarven rune or something like that. Yeah. What if I told you that there's now a miniature version of that available in that same Atlas print? Wait, really? Yeah, it holds. Uh, it has seven slots for dice. It has a nice little uh, tray where, when it's folded open, that you can roll into, uh, and it also has enough room. It looks like to fit a miniature. That's actually okay. That's actually all you need for for game night. Oh yeah, no, it's very small too. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a very practical little case. I thought you might genuinely like it. I wasn't just putting on a marketing pit. <laughs> I mean, it is nice because it's one of those things where, like, the, the full-size case you take with you on game night, you know, when you're going to go somewhere or, you know, you you know that you have a, a game tonight. But I like the idea of just always having a small one on hand so just in case a game breaks out somewhere or, you know, you're visiting your in-laws and they're like, wow, we're really bored because we haven't been able to see anybody in months. Uh, don't you do some sort of game thing? Oh, let me just go out to the car and grab my miniature, my miniature Atlas <laughs> spellbook, and uh, we can game right here. Yeah, it's like all their products. You can customize the wood, uh, the finish that you want of that. You know, cherry, walnut, purple heart. Uh, God, there's so many things that they have available now. You could choose the uh, interior style. You can choose the uh, leather color that you want on the uh, on the outside, as well as all the colors of the foil. It's you know fully customizable, but it's just in that smaller form factor that uh, might fit in more places. I like tiny things. It's a it's a spell book codex made for babies phrasing is that a thing that we're doing yes so listeners can find the mini atlas special edition spellbook and many other products at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split